Here is a map of where you have to go to see this eclipse. This is in 1981. The U.S. Naval Observatory puts out a chart like this about a year in advance. And you notice that the path goes from here. It's the yellow path you're interested in here. Uh, about 4,000 miles along the surface of the Earth. And the eclipse, actually we have a temperamental light here. The path of the moon, you see an eclipse occurs when the moon gets in front of the sun. And it's an interesting thing that the moon and the sun have the same size in the sky as we see it from Earth. This is not true anywhere else in the solar system. And only on the Earth are there people who can see the eclipse. There's no other planet you can see an eclipse. I've heard astronomers say, therefore there is a God. Why would only the Earth have the right conditions for an eclipse? The reason for the eclipse is that the sun is 400 times as big as the moon and 400 times as far away. Therefore, they both have the same size in the sky. Roughly, they vary in distance a little, so sometimes it doesn't perfectly cover the sun. But 400 and 400, and remember that. The moon and sun's size is such that you could put the moon 360 times across the sky from one horizon to the next, the full moon. The sun is that same size. You don't look at the sun with the naked eye. You use a filter. However, during an eclipse, you don't need a filter. You can look right straight at it with the naked eye along this path only. And the shadow moves along here, as I say, at the speed of a jet plane. And if you're in one spot, it'll last anywhere from just a second or two to as much as seven minutes. And the closer you can get to the center of this path, the longer it'll last, and the higher in the sky the occurrence will be. So where that red spot is, is about the center of the eclipse path, and that happens to be in Siberia. So in order to get there, <coughs> the shortest way would have been to fly from New York to Siberia across the North Pole. But there aren't any jets that go that way on a regular basis. We could have chartered one. However, the Russian government said you can't do that. You have to come in by Aeroflot, and you have to get special permission. You have to get a letter from the Soviet Union saying that you're coming and how many of you are coming and that it's an educational trip or we won't let you come. So the trip had to start from New York and go here to Iceland and then to Finland and then into the Soviet Union to Moscow here. And from Moscow, it was an overnight flight on Aeroflot to Omsk for refueling and then out to Bratsk in Siberia which is about halfway across from Moscow to Vladivostok along the Trans-Siberian Railroad. <clears throat> when we got to Moscow, we were put up in this hotel, huge. It's called the Cosmos Hotel, and this is the word Cosmos in Russian. Notice that some letters are similar because the Russians have borrowed the Greek alphabet. The Russian alphabet is the Greek one because it was Greek missionaries who brought learning to Russia years ago. And that's why the, the Russians used Greek letters, K-O-S-M-O-S. -S. This was put up in time for the Olympic Games, and then at the last minute, the United States, at the time of President Carter, 
boycotted the Olympics, so the Americans didn't go after all in 1980. But that was the hotel, and these people are two friends of ours in our group who now live uh, in Florida. He owned orange groves, am I right? Outside the hotel is the entrance to the Russian subway, the Moscow subway station here, and the tallest freestanding <coughs> tower in the world, over a thousand feet tall. This is the entrance over here to their space park. And this monument was put up in honor of Yuri Gagarin, the first human being in space. Now we're going down into the subway, which is a very inexpensive thing in Moscow. It's about the only thing that is inexpensive. For a few kopecks, you go down and go all over uh, Moscow underground. There is a Moscow subway station. Doesn't that look just like New York City? It does not. <laughs> there is not a bit of graffiti on the walls. Each station is a work of art, and people who put graffiti on the wall are never seen again. <laughs> There's another one. That's, after all, the people are on the train. The cars are still wooden the way they used to be in New York, and interestingly, the subway was designed by an engineer by the name of Joseph Stalin. And you'll see a picture of him in a minute. There he is, an honor to, in the subway station, a painting of Joseph Stalin because he was one of the people working on the subway. One thing they do not do in Moscow is uh, mow their lawns regularly in the middle of the city. The weeds are growing up. This is in front of the hotel in the entrance to one of the most famous museums in the Soviet Union the Air and Space Museum, which is like in our Smithsonian. That's the entrance. And I think they bought these things after Disney World was over or done with them because these little carts uh, took us around the museum grounds. The man waving here is Ed Hoffman, who lives out here in St. James and uh, is very active at the Suffolk Lutheran High School where he's a member of the board. Fountain in the Air and Space Park. A big building, and the doors were not open, so nobody's going in. I don't know whether it's being refurbished, although somebody told us some of these buildings are not finished on the inside. The next five-year plan takes care of that. <laughs> there is Yuri Gagarin's rocket. Just like we keep Lindbergh's plane, the Spirit of St. Louis, they keep the first rocket that took a human being into space. The hall in the museum at the end, <coughs> as we'll see a little bit later, does honor some Americans. But the main thing here is what is hanging from the ceiling. That's the first artificial satellite called Sputnik. Sputnik, which uh, we used to call the little grapefruit. Well, it wasn't a little grapefruit. It shook up everybody in the United States that we're not winning the space race and we better teach people more science in this country. And Khrushchev used it to laugh at the United States for being up there first. So it was a, uh, a sphere that uh, transmitted radio messages, that's all. But they were first. Then a, uh, a replica of one of their planetary landers. This is a machine that landed on the planet Venus. 
and the uh, antenna for one of their planetary probes. This is the Russian moon buggy. Now, we don't hear much about this. We say the United States went to the moon, came home with 800 pounds of rocks. Well, the Russians went to the moon too. And they used this tractor, or one like it, to bring back, without any human beings involved, 80 pounds of rocks by remote control. It looks a little bit like a 1930s American tractor here with that kind of uh, wheels. Actually, the reason the Russians did not send any human beings to the moon is that they had a horrible explosion in their launch site, killing a great many of their scientists and cosmonauts, and they then decided not to try to catch up to the United States anymore. That has since become very obvious, especially through a book written by Buzz Aldrin, who was on our ship, by the way, last July in the eclipse, lecturing on this topic, called Men from Earth. So if you want to read the true story of what the Russians went through trying to beat us to the moon, read Buzz Aldrin's new book, Men from Earth. Before they sent up uh, any human beings, just like we did, the Russians sent up animals. They sent up a dog, we sent up a monkey. This was the dog Laika, um, and he was then, uh, after his death, mounted and put on display in the museum in Moscow. Russian space suit. And in 1975, the Russians and Americans shook hands in space. I had the opportunity to cover this as a news reporter for American Airlines. And I had a chance in Houston and at the Cape to talk to the Russians and the Americans before they took off for this. And I think we should be proud of the fact that this Russian spaceship uh, over here on the right and this American spaceship was joined by a little module in charge of which was a Lutheran astronaut by the name of Deke Slayton. Deke Slayton is the chief astronaut for the United States. And that's a whole story in itself, why he did not go up there until in 1975, after waiting for 12 years, after being one of the first seven with the right stuff. But there were three Americans and two Russians who shook hands and did more than that. In 1975, after this flight of the two joint craft, it was decided that future manned expeditions to space should use the same kind of equipment so that if the Russians are up there in trouble, we can go and help them and vice versa. Whereas before that time, that was not possible. We didn't have the same kind of atmosphere. The United States used, it, used five pounds per square inch pure oxygen, and the Russians used 15 pounds per square inch regular air. And to go from one into the other would have killed the people. And also, the bolts of one didn't fit in the other one for any docking. But since then, and as a result of this trip, anything going into space has the same nuts and bolts. And the Russians, in fact, last week said that they are eager to join us in a trip to Mars. And as you may have heard, Grumman got a great big multi-million dollar contract last week to help build the Mars ship. So this is the first good news Grumman has had in the last several years. This is the American one. That's the Soviet one. Here's the black box in the middle where they met to shake hands where Deke Slayton was in charge of moving the cameras around. 
And when they asked him why did they pick him to do this, he said he's a farm boy from Wisconsin and he's used to shoveling things around. That's a space joke there. So, the advantage was of course for the Russians because notice there are no windshields in the Russian ship. The American ship had windshields where they could look through. We had to find them. They went up first and we had to go up and look for them. In Moscow is this planetarium like the one in Centerport. It says planetarium in Greek letters here. And uh, the shows are similar to our own. But notice out in the back they don't spend too much money on landscaping. Maybe it's because the Russian winters are short, uh, or the summers are short rather, and the cold weather doesn't allow them to have luxurious lawns, or else they just don't care for luxurious lawns. These are exhibits behind the planetarium. And here was the first bit of fakery we saw. You go inside here and you had the impression you were looking through a telescope. Well, you went in there and they had a thing that looked like a telescope and at the bottom of it, they had a photograph. So you thought you were seeing something in space. You weren't. You were just being impressed with the fact that they had an observatory. This is the University of Moscow, one of the largest universities in the world and the tuition there is free if you make it, if you get accepted. This is part of the uh, Olympic stadi <coughs> Stadium for the 1980 Olympic Games and that's the Neva River in front and they even go skiing in the summertime. This is a ski jump and it was in use. How can you ski in the summertime? Well you ski down here on Teflon skis and it's almost as good as real snow. Just like you go to the ice capades today, they're not skating on ice anymore, you know. They're using Teflon skates on Teflon rinks, and it doesn't melt. A traffic jam in Moscow. Some, this is a Russian car here. Nobody in Russia likes Russian cars. They're all eager to get rid of it. And even to get that car, you have to put your money down and wait three or four years, at least at that time. Now it's probably even worse. A lineup for food. Now remember, this is a 1981. Things were difficult. Another Russian car in front there. But not everywhere is the food scarce. That night we were given the choice. Do we want to see a Russian ballet or do we want to see a circus type thing? And so our group split up. Or we decided, and I think most of our group went to this one, and we get into the entrance to the theater around supper time, and I thought, wow, what's this? This is this the hors d'oeuvres. I mean, here were the vodka bottles and five kinds of caviar and a drink called Pinocchio. Pinocchio, the best thing I can say, is like 7-Up that has been standing open on your table for a week. <laughs> it is horrible. Well. I thought, wow, if this is the uh, advertise, if this is the appetizers, what comes next? Well, this is all there was. And this was it, okay, you've had your dinner, now you go into the show. So the green bottles were Pinocchio bottles. And we're going into the theater now, and I, some of you were here early enough, I played some of this music, the Russian dancing, for which they're very famous. Very energetic. And then we took off for the Kremlin. These are the walls you're seeing of the Kremlin, the Golden Domes, a map of the Kremlin, about two miles of walls surrounding this section. 
lot of towers and a bell. Now I want to have you listen to our Russian guide explain this bell. She speaks a pretty good English, so I'll let her talk about it. Oh, not about the bell? Well, it's about the can. All right, let me advance it a little bit. This bell was never rung, right? Right, it cracked before they got it out of the ground. It was cracked here before they got it. They cast it in the ground because it was so heavy they couldn't support the casting. And when they took it out of the ground, this piece broke out, and now it's just there as a museum piece. But now the person you're going to hear in just a moment is that gal in the center who's going to tell you about the next big attraction here inside the Kremlin, and that's this cannon. she's saying these wouldn't fit in there. <clears throat> now, uh, Moscow was not the capital of Russia in the time of the Tsars. Leningrad, or what was called St. Petersburg, and what is again called St. Petersburg now was the capital, but the communists moved the capital of Russia to Moscow, and they took over this section of Moscow, which was a collection of churches, kind of as a deliberate sign that they don't care about religion and change the churches into museums. Even though there are still crosses on top of here, at that time when we were there, there were no services being conducted there. These are gold leaf covered. There's a fortune in uh, Tsarist uh, artifacts here of uh, church decorations. It's being restored, not for religious reasons, but for tourist dollars. Um, Margaret, tell about this particular church and Ivan the Terrible. What you stop me if I make a mistake here. Ivan the Terrible was excommunicated by the church for his uh, terrible lifestyle. But in order to take in the services anyway, he built himself a separate staircase in the back of the church so that he could listen through the door. So he was still attending services even though he was excommunicated. Are we at the end here? 
having a little trouble getting these to fall into place. There we go. I didn't miss a great deal. More churches there. That's the museum there in the Kremlin. The people admiring the Tsar's crowns. The cover of a Bible with pearls. Notice it was cold, and so the Tsar's crown is on top of a fur hat. And for many years, only the uh, wealthy could get into this museum. And that's one of the things they brag about now, that it's communism. Anybody can get in and look at this stuff. The most famous church in Moscow, of course, uh, is the one in Red Square. Red Square is outside the Kremlin walls. And this area here is where they have their huge military parades. The marks on the road there are, I suppose, guide marks for the tanks and what have you when they have their May Day parades. Now, I don't know if they'll have one again this May, but that's when they impress the world with their latest military uh, technology. What you're looking at across the street is a department store, the largest in the world, GUM, G-U-M. Inside, we'll be there in just a minute, uh, you see something like you have in Smith Haven Mall, only with fancier architecture. Outside here and in front of Lenin's tomb, back here is Lenin's tomb, and we'll be inside there in just a moment, is a group of what looks like uh, Russian Girl Scouts. Now we're inside the department store Goom. <coughs> wonderful ice cream. What else is wonderful? Anything exotic, but not really any salads. Salads are very rare in Russia. When you get to a hotel and get a meal, no salads and no ice cubes. Ice cubes are uh, for some reason difficult to make or take too much energy. Uh, that church back here, as I mentioned, is the one you see usually to show that you're in Russia, that's St. Basil's. And when you get up close, you'll notice that the redecorating of the church here has been done by painting the bricks on rather than resetting them. People line up outside here to see Lenin inside the tomb. Lenin has been dead since 1924, but he's still visible there, being air-conditioned with water running through his veins, and that's how he looks today. He will probably, however, now be removed because Lenin is no longer popular. But just like we do with the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, every hour the guard in front of Lenin's tomb is changed in a very special ritual. And here are the two guys standing absolutely motionless, and during the changing of the guard, these others come along and take his place. As it looks like who's stepping to me? Behind the wall, here's Lenin's tomb in front of the wall. Behind the wall, they bury the people who are not quite so famous. 
And if you're behind the wall there, you're still pretty good. Somebody like Stalin uh, and Khrushchev are behind the wall here, but don't have quite the same honor. Now we're ready to take off for Siberia, and the first thing we see in the Soviet airport is in the middle of the runway here, with a fence around it, a Soviet airplane that has broken in two. Now why they keep this plane here on exhibit, I don't know. In the first place, they told us, do not take any pictures. Well, did you take this? The only illegal thing I think I did in Russia. I had one of these little cameras that you don't have to set anything. You know, you just push the button. And I was next to the window, and nobody was paying any attention, so I put my camera by the window and took that picture. They didn't notice it, thank goodness. They had a strict announcement when we came, do not take pictures in airports, do not take pictures. I don't know how many other things they had, but have fun. <laughs> so we took this when I enlarged it, and notice it looks like a 727 uh, from the outside. On the inside, it's another whole story. There are no assigned seats. We, there are no seat belts. We get in there and sit down, and the seat is broken where I'm sitting. A gal comes around with chicken wings piled high on a plate and gives you a few with a plastic knife and fork. And we're talking an eight-hour flight now. And after the chicken wing time is over, she comes around to collect the knives and forks. And I said, mine fell down in between. And she said, go get it. <laughs> we have to use it over again. And we waited, and we waited, and pretty soon the, the pilot walks off the plane. And we wondered what's happening next. And he comes back with maps under his arm. So we weren't very sure about his expertise in flying. <laughs> <coughs> Naturally, they had to use a lot of planes and pilots now for this special event that they didn't use before. The fellow next to me was a pilot that uh, had his own license, and I noticed he was white-knuckling it when we took off. <laughs> and I said, what's the matter with you? He said, this guy doesn't know how to fly. He's going to stall this plane out. <laughs> well, about four or five hours down, now it's always through the night that we flew, and train, plane, always in the night, they don't want you to see anything, never mind not taking pictures, it's blackout. So about three in the morning, we're landing at a place, they let us out at the airport in a little room, all uh, secure in there, and they brought in a bottle of beer or whatever it was, now we're going to refuel, this was in Omsk. Well, in another four hours now, we're in Irkutsk. And when we got to Irkutsk, a gal gets on our bus when we were taken off the plane. And now it's 8 in the morning. We haven't slept most of the night. And she says, we will now take a trip to Sidam. I said, lady, we don't want to see the dam. We want to go to a hotel and go to bed. She said, you will go to Sidam and you will like it. <laughs> So we went to the dam. This is a very big dam. Inside there are generators. There's a brand new one, they said. And one of the engineers in our group said, this is about the kind of equipment that we put into our dams during Roosevelt's time, the WPA. So they're about up to 1935. But it is a big dam. What they do with all the electricity, I don't know. So here's our hotel, finally we get there, 
in Irkutsk because we have to get up early the next morning for a three-hour boat ride out into the wilderness to get to the place in the forest where they told us we had permission to go. Now, <laughs> a forest in Siberia, it almost sounds like you will never be back. Well, they don't put much emphasis on looks in these hotels. This is the bathroom. They didn't have enough of the one kind of tile there, so they filled in the rest. There was no door, there was no curtain, there was nothing. You turned the shower on and the whole bathroom was full of water. <laughs> Down at the lower left here is the stool, you see. But at least you could take a shower. Across the street, they were doing something with this building. Notice that this scaffold piece here fell off from up there and got caught down here. Now, during the entire time we were out there, we did not see anybody do any work anywhere in town. Whether they were all on a holiday, I don't know. That's the downtown section of Bratsk in the middle of the day. Bratsk, where uh, the lake, the largest man-made lake on earth is back here, Lake Baikal. And that's where we're going to go with a boat now to the place in the middle of the path for the eclipse that has been assigned to us because the Russians said only so many Americans, so many Japanese, so many from Sweden can go to this thing. So we have to find the American place. But Margaret here smiling next to Lenin. She looks like she's in the Russian secret police here. <coughs> Notice that uh, the lawns are not, well, in Bratsk, of course, in Siberia, summer is only a week or two long. So why bother with the grass? But People are the same everywhere. This mother was very happy to pose for a picture with her little girl. Now, if you didn't know where this was, you'd say this was Central Park, New York. I mean, they're the same. I mean, it's only the government that's different. Well, early in the morning, we get down here to the wharf, and we get on this boat that will take three hours to get to the site. The government officials, on the other hand, got into this hydrofoil that got there in a half an hour. I took a picture of the rising sun here through the porthole, hoping for what is called a green flash. Now, that's another whole story, but if you're ever lucky on the water or where the sun is rising in a clear sky, just before the sun rises and right before it sets, the sun turns green. Now, if you ever see that, please call me because I have never seen it. I can explain to you what causes it, and I know people who have seen it, but I was trying to get a picture of the green flash. <coughs> now we're in the woods here, and we have a welcoming sign for the eclipse. You are welcome in English, and now we take off into the forest. <laughs> we don't know where, but a guide says, Americans, follow me. And there's a Japanese fishing <coughs> boat that the Japanese people came on. Now we're at the site finally, and we were told that this is actually a recreation area. There were a number of dachas here, I think is how they say it, they're summer homes. So we're not really in the primitive wilderness, but here's a mini hotel. Whether that means small or whether it means it has many things in it, I don't know. And with a telephoto lens, I took a picture of these secret police. Now, how do I know they were secret police? Well, the guy told us that if you look at people's shoes in Russia, 
If they are wearing sneakers, they are ordinary people. If they're wearing good shoes, they're secret police. These people had good shoes. And they are endangering their eyesight by looking at the sun. I was not about to go up there and explain that to them, that they are endangering their eyesight. I mean, that's their own thing. You need a special filter, and it has to be the right kind. Here is our site. Notice they didn't even set the table up with legs. That's our table, and that's our group here. Over here is the map of Canada. The Canadian group is over there. And we found people from other places. Uh, that's another American group here next to us. That's the Canadian group. That's the Japanese group. This guy was from Spain, and I have never been able to figure out, here it says Spain down here, what in the world he had here. This looks like a machine gun with six barrels. Up here he has a telescope, and on top of here he was pouring liquid air. Now I know why he did that, of course. He wanted to keep his film cold. Cold photography is more detailed than if your film is warm, because you get a finer grain. But I have never seen any pictures taken by this guy. Then there were the, uh, what looks like Red Cross. They, these were the chefs here, the, not the nurses, but this was for any emergencies, the first aid. And here were the chefs ready uh, with their meals, which consisted mostly of sandwiches and Pinocchio. That was part of the deal. You see, we didn't have to spend a dime all the time we were gone because from the Russian embassy and the Russian uh, people in Manhattan, in tourists, there's only one travel agency in all of Russia, it's called in tourists. When you go to in tourists in New York City, they make all the arrangements, you pay one price, and you never spend another dime. You go to the hotel, you get the food they give you, there are no choices to make. So this was all included and we didn't have to get any rubles or kopecks of any kind. Well, we had to wait a while, so I made use of the uh, entertainment here. And we're having our Pinocchio and sandwich. By the way, we were told when I asked about climate, so I could tell the people how to dress, that corduroy suits would probably be best for Siberia because it's always cold there. When we got there, it was in the 90s. They kept saying how unusual that was. Another telephoto shot where the KGB agents here are being given a ride by one fellow here who either is a political prisoner or what, but he had to push this merry-go-round for the secret police. And there was entertainment. Uh, I think I have a little of this on the machine. And you can, I think it was amateur night because you'll hear some Russian opera stars who didn't make it. That's later. First comes the eclipse announcement and reactions. Okay. Well, let's see what we have coming. Ah, yes. Well, this. Uh, listen to this Russian announcing now with loudspeakers in the trees how long we have to wait. And then right after that comes this gal singing.
because she was in the group next to us and the, when we came back to the hotel one night the police took her away. I think they caught her in the street dealing in drugs. Well, I'm not sure about that, but the way she's yelling here, it's not quite that bad. But the reaction is always emotional. People screaming and yelling and some of them getting on their knees and some even are singing and what all. But I, I'm going to show you pictures of the Eclipse in a minute, but uh, first Let's listen a little to these people entertaining, and an American in our group is thanking the Russian government for letting us come over there.
let's go through the sequence of what an eclipse looks like. When the moon's shadow first reaches the Earth, at one place in the sun you'll begin to see this dark segment. Now notice that the sun is yellow. When you look at the sun through the proper filters, our, our sun is a yellow star, which tells us that its temperature is about 10,000 degrees, but that it's cooler at the edges, and that's why it's darker on the edge of the sun. It's a little more reddish. There it's about 6,000 degrees. Now the moon's shadow, or the, the moon's disk, is coming in on this side. You'll notice there are also some sunspots here. Sunspots are storms on the sun that occur in cycles of about every 11 years. We don't know why, we don't know what effect they have on people. There are many who think that they affect our health, the economy, all kinds of other things. We don't know, we just know they come and go in 11 years. Right now there are a lot of sunspots on the sun. During the time that we saw the eclipse in 81, there were a lot because that was uh, 10 years or so ago, it was the last increase of sunspots. It takes about an hour and a half for the shadow to cross the sun. <clears throat> this is exciting, but still it's not dramatic. It's still light out, it's like in a cloudy day. Uh, the, the sky is still light, but I'm photographing it here through a filter. You, you can't shoot the sun with a camera without a... The filters I use are from a welder supply store here on Long Island. The darkest glass you can buy for a welder's helmet, number 14. That's safe to look through any time at the sun. So if you want to see the sun as spots, go to a welder supply store, get a number 14 glass, the one by three inches, and look at the sun and see if you can see spots. Now it's getting close. Now it's getting darker and the temperature is dropping and the wind is blowing up and it's getting a little cloudier and people are beginning to scream and now it's getting very close. And right after the bright part of the sun is covered, just before the last part is covered, you see one more bright thing gleaming out of the sun, and that looks like a diamond ring, and that's exactly what it's called in astronomy, the diamond ring. It's all right to look at very briefly. It's not totally safe because this is the bright part of the sun. When that's covered, you can look at the sun without any filters. Now you can look at it just like the full moon without any danger. And then you begin to see things around the outside of the moon here that you haven't noticed before. You're seeing the sun's atmosphere that is usually invisible. And you see these red things spitting out here. Now if you remember that from here to here is 800,000 miles, this red spot here is as large as the Earth. It's an explosion on the sun as big as the Earth. It's called a prominence. We don't know what makes them. The longer you expose your camera, the more of the outer layer of the sun you begin to see in photographs. And this outer layer of the sun is called the corona. And it goes on and on into space. It goes past the Earth. We're actually inside the sun. We're not 93 million miles away. We are in this outer layer. And the temperature of this outer layer is very high several million degrees, but it's very thin. So that even though the sun's atmosphere, right where the Earth is, is probably a million degrees hot, there's not much heat. Heat means the sum total of hot. And you can have a match up here and freeze to death, you know, if it's cold in the room. The match is hot and you're cold. 
But if you have a lot of matches, it'll get warm. And the same thing is true here. This corona is a million degrees, but it's so thin that it is actually thinner than a perfect vacuum, the best vacuum we can create on Earth. Why that is, we don't know. We have the vaguest idea what makes this corona. But we know that when it hits the Earth, at certain times of the year, it makes northern lights. It interacts with our atmosphere in some strange way. Notice that the sun also is like a horseshoe magnet, north and south pole. The sun is magnetic. It has a north and south pole and an equator, and it's turning. It turns about every 25 days. Now this is a, a picture that has been uh, enhanced in different ways to show these prominences more, and also that the corona has parts to it. Someone asked me before I started today whether every eclipse isn't the same. The answer is they're all different because the temperature is different, the sunspot cycle is different, the length of the eclipse is different all the way from a second to over seven minutes. So each one is a completely different experience. We've seen them on the desert in Africa at 120 degrees above zero, and we've seen them in Manitoba at 40 degrees below zero. When it got so cold, that the moisture crystallized out of the air and fell like tinsel on the ground. So they're all different. So Here, effect. Yeah, all around the outside, where the moon shadow is not striking the earth, it's red like a sunset. So what you're in is a dark part above you and a red sunset all around with the black sun in the middle and these streaks going out. And this lasts for a few minutes and then it becomes high noon again. During that dark part, you can see the stars. And when the, the moon passes off in this direction, you see the uh,